informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Hope you had a good weekend and a great Mother's Day. Thanks for joining us as we kick off another week. Should be an interesting week. Do we get a farm bill vote this week? We'll be talking about that. Latest on NAFTA. What are they getting done on dairy, if anything? We're going to talk with Jim Mulhern, president and CEO of the, US, of the National Milk Producers Federation, get his thoughts uh, on uh, NAFTA and what he's hearing on dairy, and if we're any closer to getting anything done there. Complete look at the weather coming up from Mike Palmarino with DTN. And we're going to talk about uh, the ethanol RINs issue, as well as Farm Bill with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. But right now, we start things off with Spencer Chase from AgriPulse Communications. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Are we going to get a Farm Bill vote this week? Well, I think it's looking like that's going to happen, Mike. Uh, the majority leader, the House majority leader, has set aside time for Farm Bill consideration. Uh, we'll know a lot more on Tuesday night than we know right now, because that's when the House Rules Committee is going to meet and decide which amendments are going to be in order and also set uh, set the stage for some other things that are going to be considered on the House floor this week. So. As things sit right now, it's looking like we're going to get a farm bill vote on the House floor this week. Now, it sounded like going into the weekend, Chairman Conway did not have the votes, and he was going to work the phones over the weekend. Is that what you heard? That's what we're hearing as well. He's still just a little bit short trying to come up with uh, some of those final uh, final yeses that he needs. As he says, there's still some folks that are, uh, quote-unquote, reading the bill, uh, looking to uh, figure out just where they stand on the legislation. But uh, as things sit right now, uh, we have not heard him uh, spike the football, so to say, that uh, that he has the final votes that he needs to pass this bill. And so I imagine there's going to be a, a little bit of horse trading that goes on here in town this week, uh, trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen, uh, what's going to need to be uh, put into the bill or taken out of the bill in order to uh, gain full support. And also what happens once it gets to the floor and should there be any trouble during the amendment process, that could shift some votes as well. Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting. We know the Democrats are not going to vote for it. So he's trying to shore up support within his own party. And there could be, as you say, some amendments come up that could make some changes, say, to sugar or to crop insurance that uh, he's not going to like. There's even been talk uh, if some these amendments went through, Chairman Conaway might not vote for his own bill. Well, and Chairman Conaway did get a bit of a boost from House Speaker Paul Ryan here last week. And uh, that was when the speaker said that, yes, I agree that uh, that we could be looking for some changes to the sugar program. He, uh, I mean, that's a policy position that he's held. But he's also of the mind that some of the things that they're trying to accomplish on the nutrition side of things are more important for the grand scheme of the Republican Party than going after the sugar program. And so that could be a potential boost to folks that are trying to get this bill passed. But we really won't know until we uh, until we see final consideration on the floor. Uh, keep in mind, the last, uh, the last time the Farm Bill was considered, uh, it went down on the House floor uh, in a really embarrassing defeats to, uh, to committee leaders and to, to House leaders as well. And also, there are some amendments that would have been pretty problematic for agriculture that uh, lost within, uh, I believe, about 10 votes was the final deciding factor on whether or not those amendments passed or failed. And so there's a lot to watch once this bill actually gets to the floor this week. Yeah, leadership's going to want to avoid another embarrassing situation like that. We're talking with Spencer Chase from AgriPulse Communications. Spencer, it's going to be interesting uh, uh, on the amendments and what's going to be done uh, to get to the votes because on the nutrition title, which is such a lightning rod, uh, and the criticism that's been primarily about it goes too far, there are some within the Republican Party that are 
upset or concerned that it doesn't go far enough. Right, and there's a lot of there's a lot of folks in the Republican Party that you're just never going to get them to vote in favor of uh, giving a single dollar to nutrition assistance. It's just a policy that they don't agree with. But it's always been this uh, urban and rural coalition that has been uh, helpful in passing farm bills of the past. It allowed for urban members to uh, vote in favor of farm programs and allowed rural lawmakers to vote in favor of food stamps. Now, whether or not that coalition is going to hold up throughout this farm bill uh, remains to be seen. Obviously, the the Senate piece of things is a very important thing to consider as well. And so there's still a lot yet to unfold here here in this farm bill process. We'll know a lot more uh, here when we're talking to you next week than we do right now. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like if there is a vote, it wouldn't come to a mid to late week then, right? Well, yeah, that's what we're thinking. Uh, like I said, on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, the House Rules Committee is going to meet, uh, decide kind of the, the lay of the land in terms of what amendments are going to be considered as well as some other pieces of legislation, and then look for a vote on the rule uh, of the bill on Wednesday and potentially into some floor consideration uh, later in the day, Wednesday into Thursday morning, potentially uh, Thursday afternoon. So we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, on NAFTA, we're starting to hear some ominous talk that maybe they can't get this thing done. Well, there's been talk about uh, optimism uh, surrounding NAFTA for a long time, but uh, the powers that be were never, you know, abundantly optimistic or pessimistic. They were always just kind of at their had their nose at the grindstone and trying to get something to work. But uh, the, there's been talks at the ministerial level here in, in Washington, D.C., for, for several weeks now, and uh, there has just been, not been a ton of progress reported out of those talks. And uh, we've got folks that are, that are following that for us, and there's just not, uh, not a ton of daylight that they can seem to see uh, as, uh, as folks continue to, to talk about this deal. I, I believe dairy is still, still remains one of the outstanding issues that they're trying to get, to, that they're trying to get ironed out. And so agriculture is uh, really going to be uh, one of the key issues as, uh, as NAFTA negotiations come to a conclusion. And meanwhile, we had some more announcements on uh, USDA positions. Right. Friday was a, was a very busy day. Uh, lots of new co-workers for Department of Agriculture uh, appointees. We saw a new uh, FSA director uh, out of Missouri. We saw uh, new food safety leadership uh, that was within the department, as well as new uh, leadership for the Agricultural Marketing Service, uh, also a, a department uh, promotee. And so there's uh, fewer and fewer spots uh, remaining at the, uh, at the leadership level here at the Department of Agriculture. Uh, but uh, potentially could see some more some more announcements here on that front as the as the weeks continue to unfold because now that uh, they have the undersecretaries in place they can start to uh, appoint some of these administrators with uh, with undersecretary approval that was something that was pretty important to secretary Purdue was that he wanted to get undersecretaries in place before he started naming administrators that were going to have to then report to those undersecretaries just to make sure everyone was going to be on the same page What's your take on Ray Starling leaving the White House as a special assistant to the president and moving to USDA to be chief of staff? Well, I, I guess I don't know if I have uh, much of a take on it, Mike, but I will say uh, I've, uh, you know, I know a lot of folks in, in town that also know Ray, and I uh, really haven't heard a lot of bad things about the guy. In fact, I'm not sure if I've heard a single one. I think he's uh, pretty well respected uh, within, within the ag community and also within the, the broader political landscape. He also spent some time... Uh, working on Capitol Hill for Senator Tom Tillis out of North Carolina, and so he's uh, he's a very respected uh, voice in Washington. Is also uh, very respected in in agricultural policy circles, and so uh, he's uh, he's very much so a relationship builder, a coalition builder, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds at the Department of Agriculture under under his leadership. You know what uh, 
what moves will the department make uh, or how will the, the governance of certain things change. But uh, a lot of people very happy. Uh, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet uh, day because a lot of folks very happy to see uh, Ray join the USDA, but also uh, very, very concerned that uh, his, his voice of reason, which it sometimes serves to be, is going to be leaving the, the White House. A lot of folks yeah, went that to that meeting b between uh, the president and Secretary Purdue that uh, convinced the president not to pull out of NAFTA. Well, Ray Starling was in on that meeting as well. Yeah, that's what jumped out at me. I think it's his move to USDA is good for USDA. I think the concern for agriculture is his voice will no longer be at the White House, uh, at least maybe not as prominently as it has been. All right, Spencer, another interesting week ahead. Thanks a lot. We'll be watching for your reporting on all the uh, things going on. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Take care. Spencer Chase with AgriPulse Communications. Up next, Iowa Senator Charles Grassley on AOA Adams on Agriculture. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project, so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over five million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call, the hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1-800-489-7204. 1-800-489-7204. That's 1-800-489-7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed debt management service provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM80031. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 
1-800-318-7903. Call now. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Well, as we've uh, been talking about, a busy week ahead. May get a vote uh, later in the week on the uh, Farm Bill on the House side. Of course, we're still looking at the RFS situation and um, and what's happening with NAFTA. We'll talk about those issues with our next guest, Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. Senator, thanks, as always, for joining us. I'm glad to be with you, Mike, anytime. I love talking to the farmers of Iowa. By the way, uh, in uh, the Waterloo area of Iowa, uh, we're not as wet as they are up along the Minnesota border, and we've got uh, about 60 more acres of soybeans to put in, and we'll be done planting this year. That's good news. All right, uh, let's talk Farm Bill. Um, are you watching what's happening in the House, and have you looked at that House Farm Bill proposal? Do you have thoughts on what you like, don't like about it? Uh, on all those points, uh some talk about the bill coming up this week. Uh, I'm interested in somebody in the House of Representatives <clears throat> putting in place my uh, bill of having a hard cap on the money that any one farmer can get from the farm program and to make sure that non-farmers uh, don't get uh, uh, the benefits uh, of that. In other words, you ought to have dirt under your fingers or you at least ought to be a manager and one manager per farming operation. And you probably know that along the lines of what I just talked about, uh, that uh, the Conway bill uh, really uh, eliminates almost any curbs we have on what uh, one uh, farming operation can get out of the farm program and the non-farmers are going to be managers and maybe make one phone call from Wall Street to the farming operation uh, to... uh, uh, to uh, in order to qualify as as a as a manager and and get the maximum amount, and then it, uh, it, it, it for all basic purposes there's unlimited subsidies, and uh, uh, and there's a big difference between southern agriculture, corn, soybeans, or well, I should say corn, peanuts, uh, and rice uh, compared to what they get compared to what midwestern farmers are getting. Basically, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, So, from that standpoint, the other thing is, it looks to me like they're trying to pass it on strictly a partisan basis. And, you know, in the United States Senate, we're going to have to have a bipartisan bill. So, one or two things they're either going to have 216 votes in the House of Representatives that are all Republicans, or they're going to have to rewrite their bill uh, to get bipartisan support in the House of Representatives. Their approach to the uh, nutrition title, uh, we expect something different from the Senate side. Do you, uh, do you agree with what uh, Chairman Conaway is trying to do with that portion of the bill? The answer is yes, but I don't know whether we could get such a bill through the House of Representatives. And you probably know you're not going to uh, pass a uh, farm bill in the United States Senate or no, you aren't going to get a farm bill through the Congress at all if you don't have food stamps connected with it. Now, I don't particularly like that, but for 40 or 50 years, that's been the process. If you want city people to vote for a farm bill and have a safety net for farmers, uh, you're going to have to have food stamps as part of it. And remember when this started out, 
It started out when you had a surplus of agricultural commodities, uh, and the uh, government was controlling all those surpluses uh, through the bins that the government set up uh, and the uh, and the uh, caves where they had uh, mountains and mountains of cheese down in Kansas City, as an example. And the food stamp program was to help hungry people uh, eat up surplus agricultural products. So there is a connection between the farm bill and uh, the uh, food stamp program historically, uh, but now a lot of people feel it's out of control, and to some extent it might be. And uh, so separate from the farm bill, I'm not going to argue with the fact that you, that you ought to have work requirements for people that have the ability to work, uh, because uh, getting people in the world to work is one way of getting out of poverty. If you're going to be on government programs all your life and you've got the ability to work uh, and you don't work, you're always going to be in poverty. But if you get in the world of work, you're going to work yourself up the economic ladder and get out of poverty. Well, you're, you talked about the payment limits, and you've been a staunch advocate for that for a number of years. Will we see something along those lines in the Senate bill when it comes out? All I can tell you is I'm going to try hard, and I've been successful through the last three farm bills of having it included, but obviously uh, we got uh, and we got it through the House last year, so we've made more progress in the last farm bill than we ever made before, but you know what the conferees did to it. Uh, they violated every rule of conference and, uh, and obliterated what I had in as a hard cap. And by Doctor, the way, would, it's not yeah. it's not just for the sake of of uh, of uh, limiting what one farmer can get. It saves over a billion dollars, and saving that amount of money is worth saving. We're talking with Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. All right, let's go to the RFS issue. You've been heavily involved in this. Uh, it seems like that last meeting at the White House uh, still left a lot of questions, a lot of uh, things unanswered. Where are we with this, and uh, what are your thoughts on this on these wrens being used for exports? Uh, because there's a lot of concern about that. Um, okay, uh, first of all, uh, what's very positive coming out of the meeting at the White House? We're going to have E15 12 months out of the year instead of now eight months out of the year, uh, and you're going. And that's going to encourage a lot of investment uh, in uh, the pumps that you have to have at station stations to dispense uh, E15, and that's very positive for ethanol. Uh, the fact that they're uh, not going to have camps, uh, caps on RINs is also a positive development, because that would be very harmful uh, to ethanol. And uh, so RINs caps on, uh, or I mean RINs uh, certificates being applied to exports, uh, if that's coupled with uh, uh, with uh, not having this liberal use of hardship waivers, and if we know that those waivers are going to be figured out before we get our uh, our allocation for next year at 15 billion gallons, that could be positive. But I haven't seen it on paper, and I'm not going to say that uh, that that's uh, uh, okay because we could end up with something that would uh, uh, offset negatively the benefit of uh, E15 12 months out of the year, so I'm just going to have to reserve just judgment until I see what's on paper. Yeah, I was going to ask, are you getting any indication that EPA is going to change their approach to granting these waivers? 
Well, that's got to be a part of the process. Otherwise, uh, RIN certificates on exports uh, will be a total negative of the benefit of E15 12 months out of the year. What is your, what was your sense coming out of that meeting? How the how does President Trump feel about this issue? He wants a compromise that will give a little bit to everybody. And I'm not sure you can give a little bit to everybody without hurting ethanol. But I'm also uh, know that he's committed to 15 billion gallons a year because on January the 16th, 2016, when he was a candidate speaking to Iowa, to the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, we have him on tape saying that he's for everything the law allows, and the law allows 15 billion gallons a year from grain. Yeah, the concern is if they come out and announce 15 billion gallons, but if they keep granting the waivers, 15 billion is not really 15 billion if that happens again, yeah, right? It's, it's 13, 13 and 8 tenths billion. And, uh, and so we got given to us November last year uh, of the 15 billion gallon promise. But they, what they give with the left hand, they take away with the right hand. And with the, uh, with the uh, waivers as liberally given as they are, that's now 13 and 8 tenths billion gallons. So part of this whole compromise that we're supposed to have reached at the White House, if it comes out the way that uh, in spirit, uh, in language, the way it is in spirit, uh, then we ought to know what the, those waivers are, are going to be uh, very conservatively issued and only in truly hardship cases, which means some company that's making a billion and a half profits last year isn't entitled to a waiver. And we're going to know what those waivers are before the RVOs are put out at the 15 billion gallons. So at the end of the year, we know 15 billion gallons is really 15 billion gallons. All right. Hopefully we'll get those answers soon. Senator, as always, thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate your time. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. And again, as you heard him say, he's going to push hard again for payment limits uh, in the farm bill. He doesn't see him in the House bill. He's going to push to get him in the uh, Senate bill. We still don't know the details of what will come out of that Senate bill. Uh, anxious to see what that's going to be. We know it's going to be different from this House bill. And again, we think mid to late week we may get a vote uh, if they think they have the votes on the House floor for the farm bill. Well, what about NAFTA? We're starting to hear some uh, more negatives some more pessimistic tones to things. Is that uh, Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's the darkest before the dawn. Who knows? But uh, what about dairy? That's the big issue that still has to be addressed. Jim Mulhern, president and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation, joins us next on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I'd wake up with a sore neck or maybe a headache, or I'd feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. Well, when I invented my pillow, I wanted it so you could adjust the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not how much time we spend in bed. It's how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all my own manufacturing in my home state of Minnesota with a 10-year warranty, 
and you can wash and dry my pillow. And here's my best offer ever. Get four my pillows for the price of one. That's right. Get four my pillows, two premium pillows and two travel pillows for the price of one. Order my pillow at 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Get four my pillows for the price of one. Call 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Go to MyPillow.com and at checkout, use promo code FARM11. Time for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Soybean futures were on the rise overnight. Corn, steady lower, wheat prices drifting. Senior Chinese officials due to visit Washington this week. That's helping to bring some buying interest back into the oil seed market, according to the Wire Talk. China said on Monday it's sending an envoy to the U.S. this week for talks aimed at cooling a trade dispute that threatens to upend everything from soybeans to steel. The Chinese welcoming comments by President Trump hinting at a possible easing of sanctions on embattled Chinese telecoms firm ZTE. The U.S. is considering imposing tariffs on up to $150 billion worth of Chinese products. Beijing has countered with proposed tariffs on $50 billion in American goods, including soybeans and small aircraft. Soybean futures plunged on Friday, July, skidding to its lowest level since April 4th. The 200-day moving average seen at 10.16. We're hovering near that level an hour into Monday's trading session. Corn... Fractional changes, if any. The 20-day moving average seen at 397 on the July contract. We're at 396 and a quarter, down a quarter of a cent. For the wheats, Chicago, 6 to 7 and a fraction lower. Same range in Kansas City, 3 and a fraction lower in Minneapolis spring wheat futures. For livestock, the Merck losses in cattle futures on this Monday. Live cattle, $1.05 to $1.50 lower. Feeder cattle, $1.55 to $1.77 lower, but in lean hog futures were 47 to 87 cents higher on a Monday. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow is up 108 points, NASDAQ up 38, S&P up 11, crude oil up 35 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 11ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.11ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 11ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Ministers from the U.S., Mexico, and Canada are supposedly on call this week as uh, negotiators continue to try to find uh, agreement for NAFTA. But they left Washington last week, and there was no indication that a deal was about to come, and that's led some to have some kind of pessimistic uh, uh, predictions on whether or not we're going to get 
an agreement. And even uh, Larry Kudlow, who is the National Economic Council director, says, I don't know if we're going to get a deal. And you're talking to the guy who is the optimist and the happy warrior as we meet now. I don't know. And he said, I don't even want to go with the usual Kudlow optimist. I can't go there. Let's talk about it now with Jim Mulhern, president and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. Jim, thanks for joining us. What are you hearing and what's your feeling on these NAFTA talks? Well, great to be with you this morning, Mike. And uh, I guess I would start by saying that I, too, am an optimist. Uh, And in this case, I'm a bit more optimistic than Larry Kudlow is. Um, I do think we'll get a NAFTA agreement. Um, I think what he's speaking to more is the timing. And I don't think we're going to see something in the short term here. As you know, there's been a big push uh, on by the administration to get a deal here by the middle of May. Um, This week is kind of an informal deadline in order to get an agreement that could be passed uh, by the Congress um, in a lame duck session later this year. Uh, Given the challenge in the negotiations, I don't think they're going to meet that deadline. That seems to be the the growing consensus. Uh, So this is going to take longer, which is not a surprise to me. Uh, but I do think that at the end of the day, we get an agreement on NAFTA. It's just going to take longer than people were hoping. What about the dairy portion of the deal? It seems like that's been put off, to, at least what we've known publicly, put off here till the end. Do you see any breakthrough happening there? Um, I think because of the, the nature of these negotiations, we're not going to see a breakthrough on dairy until some of the other sort of bigger picture issues are resolved. That's how these negotiations often go. It's been our expectation throughout this process, and that really is where the hang-up is right now. The, the biggest issue in the negotiations has been this issue of so-called rules of origin, having to deal with automobiles and cars that are manufactured in North America, you know, partially manufactured in the U.S., uh, partially in Mexico, uh, uh, partially in Canada, and the movement of parts for those. That has been the biggest issue in the negotiations. They don't have a deal on that. And until that, until there's a breakthrough there, and then three or four other major issues like that, you're not going to see um, a real agreement on issues like dairy. End of the day, I do think that agreement comes together on rules of origin, on issues like government procurement, on issues like a dispute settlement process, and the sunset clause. Those are the big four. Once those fall into place, and they and I believe they will fall into place, just not here in the near term, once they do, issues like dairy, and dairy is the main agricultural issue on the table to be resolved, um, I do think we make progress on that issue. What can we realistically expect to come out of this dairy dispute? What do you, what do you think we could see in there as far as how much access Canada is going to allow or how much change they're going to make in Class 7, or, or what might we see? Well, then you hit the two issues, Mike. There are two primary issues, two key issues on dairy with respect to the U.S. relationship with Canada. Um, one, uh, the underlying issue that's been an ongoing one, um, is, is dairy market access. Uh, the high tariff wall that Canada maintains on access of our products into their market, that has to be addressed. This is, after all, a free trade agreement. It is not an uh, agreement of, of high tariffs. On much of agriculture, we've you know, eliminated tariffs, but dairy and a couple of the commodities still have very high tariffs. Um, I do see those tariffs coming down. It'll take time to bring them down, um, but that's, what, that's how you do trade agreements. The second issue is Class 7, and that is the more recent policy Canada has put into place to essentially take the surplus that they have in their country, the surplus milk ingredients that have been created by increasing their quotas, 
their production quotas beyond market needs for milk ingredients. They're dumping that on the world market. That's undercutting our market price. And frankly, it's undercutting the market price for uh, other dairy exporting countries around the world. Uh, that has to be addressed. So I do believe at the end of the day, Class 7 gets eliminated and market access gets addressed. What that will be exactly in terms of market access um, you know, remains to be seen. But those tariffs have to come down to give U.S. dairy better access in the Canadian market. After all, as I said earlier, this is a free trade agreement. We've heard from Canada different officials basically saying, you know, we offered uh, some of these things, that we offered access in TPP, you pulled out of TPP, you, the United States. That seemingly was kind of setting a benchmark. That's the most you could get back is what they would agree, had agreed to in TPP. If that's the case, would you be satisfied with that? No, absolutely not. And as your listeners may recall, during the TPP negotiations, one of the things that we were concerned about as those, those negotiations wrapped up was the very limited market access that Canada granted to the U.S. Our ultimate support for TPP was not because of the market access to either Canada or Japan, which we felt was, was uh, below, much farther below, much, much below what was needed. It, we supported it because of the other non-tariff issues uh, that were addressed. We thought TPP made some really important improvements in the rules of trade among the 12 countries that were part of that agreement. Uh, but if Canada thinks that what was offered uh, in TPP as a market access provision um, is a, even a, a starter here, um, they're wrong. Uh, and we won't support that. And we don't see the administration supporting that. We've been very pleased that Ambassador Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, has indicated to members of Congress that uh, the two issues that we're talking about here on dairy are ones that are at the heart of the administration's goals to address um, in the ag negotiations with Canada. And at the end of the day, we're, we feel very optimistic that they will be addressed. What that will be exactly, I can't tell you. We could be a long ways off from that. But um, it will be. It has to be better than what Canada offered in TPP. We're talking with Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. Jim, are you? Do you have any feeling or indication of how sign-up is going for the Margin Protection Program? Well, it's a great question, Mike, and it's one that we were just uh, just talking about this morning. Uh, we've been in discussions with USDA. We know sign-up is coming in. They're pulling together numbers from the state FSA offices around the country. Haven't seen a total number yet, uh, but uh, we do know that people are going to the offices to check. I would, I would simply say, uh, in terms of, of, of dairy farmers across the country are thinking about this, look closely at the changes in MPP. Uh, the improvements that have been made, especially given market prices this year, um, the experience for the last two years, last three years that producers have had where they paid in more than they've received, um, given market prices so far this year and the projections for the next few months, uh, on that first 5 million pounds of production, um, there'll be a net benefit to producers. So uh, if people haven't been into their FSA office yet, haven't looked at these calculations, they ought to because um, this is a program with the changes uh, this will be a benefit to producers this year, and this is a year, obviously, when people can use that benefit. Now, we keep hearing about this new insurance program that will be coming out later this summer. Um, we're still kind of waiting for all the details on that, but does that, does that muddy the waters in a way? I mean, 
do, do you think that causes producers to say, wait, I'll, I'll wait to see what that's going to be? Or how, how do you see that figuring into this and, and uh, dairy producers' decision-making? No, I don't think it should be viewed as something that will muddy the waters. Uh, one of the things that we at National Milk have been pushing for throughout this whole process has been to provide more risk management tools to producers. That means improvements in MPP, which are going to be most effective on that first 5 million pounds of production, and improvements in the overall dairy safety net on risk management programs. As, as you know, Mike, the, the, um, the livestock gross margin program, so-called LGM dairy, has been limited up to this point in time. One of the things that we did earlier this year is take the, raise the cap uh, which limited participation. LGM will be a better program, but the key to that was it let USDA um, develop other policies. And this revenue protection program that they for dairy that they've approved by the uh, the Federal Crop Insurance Board will be offered. My understanding, sometime this summer, they'll start um, offering policies um, that should not have the limit um, that is in current law on uh, MPP and LGM. So, you know, right now you can't be in the LGM program and the MPP program. Um, that should not apply to this new revenue protection plan that will be that will be offered. We don't know the details in that program yet, but it is designed to be an additional tool to producers. So I wouldn't let, if I were in the, the position of making the decision, I would uh, look at MPP, sign up for that, then take a look at this revenue protection plan when it comes out and see if that works for me as well. So the bottom line is uh, what you're uh, striving for here, and it looks like you're getting it, is to have more and better options available to producers. That's exactly right. That's been the, the big challenge for us in dairy for some time here has been having the tools available to address the volatility in milk prices and some of these really you know, low prices we've been seeing in the last few years. The improvements in MPP are going to help fill in some of that gap, um, but we know that program uh, is, is really going to be most effective on that, on that first 5 million pounds of production. Above that, we need additional risk management tools and, you know, LGM can do that. Um, this new risk management program um, will be able to do that. And by taking off the cap on LGM, what that did was allow USDA to entertain other policies. So we do, do look for more uh, uh, programs like the new revenue protection plan that's going to be coming out. We do look for more of those to be offered by USDA in the, in the, the, years, the months and years ahead. Very good. Jim, good to talk with you again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike. Good to be with you. Take care. Jim Mulhern, President and CEO of the National Milk Producers Federation. All right. Well, we always start the week off with a look at weather. And um, Mike Palmerino from DTN will be sitting in for Bryce Anderson this week. We'll take a look at the week ahead and the weeks ahead as uh, we continue to try to get uh, this year's uh, planting done and already some concerns in some areas about the uh, those areas that have already been planted could use some rain. We'll see who's going to get the rain, who's not this week ahead. That's coming up next on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number. 
alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with models starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. All right, guys, we're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym, my gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room, weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait, a family hub. Yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. More reasons for four seasons now. To find out more, call toll-free 800-988-4477. That's 800-988-4477. Call 800-988-4477 today. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now. In 1847, Hanson Crockett Gregory invented the donut. Genius. In 1908, Melita Benz invented the paper coffee filter. Genius. In 1928, Otto Frederick Rowetter invented sliced bread. Genius. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie. Mmm, genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. 
At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk weather. Mike Palmerino from DTN sitting in for Bryce Anderson. Mike, thanks for being with us. Uh, what can we expect this week ahead? Well, I think it depends on where you are. But overall, Mike, it looks very favorable in the Midwest. Uh, reason being is that the northwestern belt, where they have really been well behind normal on planting of corn and beans due to the uh, cool start to the spring, they are going to have the uh, driest weather uh, over the upcoming week and uh, relatively mild temperatures. So that's really going to jumpstart planting in there. And then the southern and eastern belt, basically southern Iowa, Missouri, across Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, where much more planting has been done over the last couple of weeks, they are going to be unsettled but mild. So I think what you're going to see down there is maybe some disruptions in planting, but not enough to be a problem. In between rain events, they will get some planting done, and then just very favorable moisture and mild temperatures to uh, get this crop up and going. Yeah, some of those areas that are planted could use some uh, some moisture uh, now. So uh, you, have, you have a different scenario wherever you're looking. Let's look at those states like uh, oh, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Uh, are they going to get much done this week? I think they are. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what the numbers show this afternoon because, you know, a week ago they were way behind up in there. be interesting to see how much they did during the past week when there was some improvement in the uh, weather. And uh, depending upon that, if we see some improvement, then I would expect to see much more improvement this week because I think this upcoming week is going to be the, probably the best week for planting they have seen up in the northern belt uh, so far this spring. What about out in the plains? Any moisture out there for them? There is some. It's a very, very tough call there. The, uh, the patterns look unsettled uh, across Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, but it's the same deal, Mike, where the moisture can only get so far back to the west, and most of the showers that we're seeing are in the eastern portions of the winter wheat belt, basically central Kansas, central Oklahoma. You go back into west Texas, western Oklahoma, western Kansas, and they're just getting the leftovers of a few light showers. It's really going to be a close call this week. It's almost too close to call. Uh, the persistence in this pattern says that the eastern areas will continue to be favored over the west, but the uh, availability of uh, thunderstorm activity this week, the uh, likelihood that they could be in and out of showers virtually all week, I think at least will give them some opportunity for some beneficial rains. And Kansas could definitely benefit from this as their crop development is still uh, well behind normal. 
Mike, what's your, what are your models showing for what we might expect this summer? What kind of summer might we have? Well, clearly at this point, Mike, uh, there's no real cause for concern regarding any sort of a major drought developing in the Midwest. There's there's really no signs of, of any sort of uh, stationary high pressure developing over the Midwest. There are some hints right now that if high pressure does develop and show some persistence that it would actually be more into the uh, Canadian prairies and uh, potentially parts of the northern plains, that that could be the area, at least during the first part of the summer, that could be subjected to some uh, persistently hot, dry weather. But that's sort of a scenario. When you put the ridge that far west, it allows cool air to the east of the ridge to build southward out of Canada, and that drops right down through the upper Midwest and Great Lakes. And you get a little bit of a weak jet stream forming to the south, uh, and disturbances move right along the track between the cooler air to the north and the warmer air to the south, and, and that leads to what I think is going to be a very, very favorable start uh, to the summer uh, in the Midwest. We've been watching Brazil, and they've been dry. Did they get any rain, or are they about to get any rain? Uh, they haven't had any. The, uh, it's like someone flipped a switch there. They, the, the rainfall totals were really doing well up until about two weeks ago, and then all of a sudden it just shut off literally overnight. And that's been a problem because as soon as it stopped raining, it turned hot. And uh, the, because of the late planting of the crop, because of the fact that it had been so wet up there, uh, there's still about 50% of that crop that is still uh, pollinating and filling. And uh, it has definitely been stressed, and we're hearing more and more talk about some significant crop losses coming out of there, and I think that's justified. This week, again, looks to be rather hot and dry. There are some indications on the computer models here in the last day or so that we could see a strong cold front come through over the weekend that could produce about a quarter to an inch of rain, followed by some cooler temperatures. I, I think the best-case scenario, if that happens, would be to maybe halt the precipitous decline in, in crop conditions that they have there now. But I don't think they're going to bring this crop back uh, this late in the season as uh, – you know, it's very unlikely that the pattern is going to turn significantly wetter as they are now pretty much established in their dry season. One more question from back here in the United States, Mike, uh, as we wrap things up. Any signs of severe weather developing anytime uh, coming up? Are, are things still calm there? They're fairly calm. Um, reason being is that we're we're really looking at a, a very strong jet stream that is really preventing the interaction between the dry lines off to the west and moisture off to the east. So, you know, I think you could see some, I would say the areas most likely to see some severe weather this week would be in the uh, central portions of Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, and then maybe some of that curling into uh, parts of Missouri, uh, maybe southwestern Iowa, that little band in there. Uh, would be the area that could be in and out of some severe weather. But this is clearly still not a major severe weather-type uh, pattern. All right, Mike, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. You're welcome. 
DTN meteorologist Mike Pomerino. And with that, we're going to wrap things up. I want to thank you for joining us. This uh, looks like it'll be a very interesting week. We'll, we'll keep you up to date on uh, the Farm Bill and uh, the NAFTA talks and RFS and so much more. Uh, again, mid to late week, we think maybe the House will vote on the Farm Bill. We'll know if they have the votes, whether or not they call, uh, you know, get it on the agenda or not. But uh, evidently, they're still trying to get those votes put together. We'll keep a close watch on it for you. Have plenty of information right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone.